Last Lord's Day, we began our annual spiritual checkup or audit, as we call it, an inventory of our spiritual life. I've had quite a bit of response to that, by the way, surprisingly, but thankfully. We focus primarily on what we may on what we may be described or we describe symbolically as profitable spiritual inventory items. In other words, items in our spiritual character inventory that causes us to be placed on the plus side of the ledger rather than the minus side. These items, of course, included such items as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so on. It's what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. These are spiritual virtues or traits that growing believers are to continually manifest in their lives. In fact, the scriptures go so far as to say that these virtues are evidence of the fact that we do really have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ in the first place. And that's why the inventory, the checkup, the ordered spiritually is so vital for us. Paul and Peter exhorts us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we be in the faith. And being the end of the year, it fits in with the idea of taking inventory. Now we also, of course, looked at a list of the spiritual virtues Peter outlines for us in Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And he, Peter warns us that these virtues must be added to our faith on an ongoing basis. And he says, if we have, are not adding these virtues to our faith, then we are myopic. We are close-sighted, near-sighted. And he says, we have forgotten the fact that we have been regenerated. Those are powerful words. If these virtues, Peter says, are not being constantly added to our profession of faith in Christ, then he said, you better check up to see if you are in Christ in the first place. Many of us face a spiritual checkup the way we face a a, an audit of our accounts. We are afraid. Because we have to give an account for every penny, every expense, every purchase, every piece of income, and all of that. And sometimes we are a little afraid. We are even more afraid to go to the scriptures and to do a spiritual audit. Because you see, it's just not the thing to be done. I said 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I walked down the aisles, I accepted Christ. Done deal. I have no need to examine to see if that was genuine. False. Not according to the word of God. That was clearly established in our message last time. But these spiritual items that Paul and Peter describes as virtues we need are marks of a person who truly has the life of Christ within them. And so when Paul and Peter exhort us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we be in the faith, 
They're actually saying, check to see if you are exhibiting these virtues on a consistent basis. If you are not, then perhaps you are not in the faith at all. In other words, to use our example again, your spiritual stock shelves must have these items on them at all times. They put you on the plus side of your spiritual life ledger. It provides the outward evidence that you are indeed a child of the living God. That was last week. Now today, I want to now look at what I call the unprofitable inventory items. These are items we need to get rid of and in fact never stock in the first place on our spiritual shelves. We're going to take a look at them because again, Paul is very precise and detailed in describing these pieces of spiritual inventory that takes away from our profit line. In fact, it, they might even tell us we are not in the right store in the first place. False advertising. I am a Christian, but you come and look side at my character, nothing to show that you are. You could be sued for false advertising. Here's what Paul says. Galatians chapter 2. This is where we began with the fruit of the Spirit, but now Paul goes on to another side of the ledger. Verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. I'm reading from the New King James Version. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, Sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and I like this one, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past. In other words, Paul is saying, then listen, there's nothing new to you. This concept of looking at the characteristics of your life, the virtues or lack thereof, to determine whether or not you are a believer, this is not new to you. I've told you this before. Notice what he says. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the word of God. That's the New King James Version. 
Let's read it from the Good News translation. What I say is this. Let the Spirit direct your lives, and you will not satisfy the desires of the human nature. By the way, I disagree with that uh, definition of what uh, the flesh is. But anyway, verse 17. For what our human nature wants is opposed to what the Spirit wants. And what the Spirit wants is opposed to what our human nature wants. These two are enemies. And this means that you cannot do what you want to do. If the Spirit leads you, though, then you are not subject to the law. What human nature does is quite plain. It shows itself in immoral, filthy, and indecent actions. In worship of idols and witchcraft. People become enemies and they fight. They become jealous, angry, and ambitious. They separate into parties and groups. They are envious. They get drunk and have orgies and do other things like these. I warn you now, as I have done before, those who do these things will not possess the kingdom of God. Finally, let's read it from the New International Reader's Version. So I say, live by the Holy Spirit's power. Then you will not do what your sinful nature wants you to do. The sinful nature does not want what the Spirit delights in. And the Spirit does not want what the sinful nature delights in. The two are at war with each other. That's what makes you do what you don't want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the authority of the law. The implication is that's why you're following the lust of the flesh. Verse 19. What the sinful nature does is clear. It enjoys sexual sins. Impure acts and wild living. It worships statutes of gods. It also worships evil powers. It is full of hatred and fighting. It is full of jealousy and fits of anger. It is interested only in getting ahead. It stirs up trouble. It separates people into their own little groups. It wants what others have. It gets drunk and takes part in wild parties. It does many things of that kind. Now, here is the reason why we need to do this spiritual audit at this time. I warn you, now, as I did before, people who live like this will not receive God's kingdom. Can you be any more absolute? There's no gray area here. Oh, but he's so nice. If these things are an ongoing daily habit, no matter what you say, according to this, you have no part of the kingdom of God. 
And so these texts are clear and precise. The fleshly items described cannot be items that are continually stocked in a genuine Christian spiritual character warehouse or inventory. These are items that all go on the non-profit or lost column of the ordered sheet. In fact, if they are always in stock, then that person who stocks them is not a Christian in the first instance. He or his profession is false. This passage leaves us in no doubt about this. Yes, it's possible for a genuine Christian to have one or more of these items on his or her spiritual character shelf for a short while. True error. But as soon as it is discovered, it is taken off the shelf. In other words, the sin is confessed and forsaken. And we enter the victory that we have in Jesus Christ described in this passage. Because he makes it right again. Isn't that wonderful? No matter what the sin may be, the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse that sin. Ironically, the red blood of Christ can be applied to the non-profit, profitable items of our life, if you want, and turn them into the right, or not turn them, but remove them all together and put into place the righteous character of Jesus Christ. Only the blood of Christ can do that. And so I want to pause here right now. I don't know where you are in your spirit. I don't know what that secret sin might be. But you don't have to go on with it. Confess it. Have it cleansed. Turn away. And God will give you a new inventory. That's the grace of God. But as long as these items remain on your shelf, on your character shelf, as it were, you will be registering spiritual loss. Continually. So it's important for us to do a spiritual audit, not only of the positive traits, but of the negative. Now, when we do an inventory of the positive traits, love, joy, peace, gentle, boy, all those sound so pretty, right? Sounds so nice. But now we come to the other side of the ledger. We have to be just as precise. And it's difficult. I had a difficult time with this passage, not only because I had the flu all week. And by the way, that's why you don't have one of these. I forgot to have uh, Alan do it, uh, to describe it. But just going through the languages, the Greek, to get the true meaning of these terms, you come away spiritually unclean if it weren't for the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's necessary. So, Let's do another audit then. This time, however, to see if we have any non-profitable spiritual items stocked away in our character as believers. Remember the biblical spiritual checkup tool we gave you last week. As I mentioned, we don't have it this time. 
But I hope you have a pencil. You could write down the names anyway as you go along. And you can still put your, your uh, score to it. But remember how we did it. Last time we had, of course, an unsatisfied and a satisfied column with 1 through 10 as the score level and so on. We used this spiritual checkup tool. The left side of the scale represented the undesirable side. The right side represented the desirable desirable side. The lower number or score is what we did not want. We wanted the greater number for each virtue according to this scale. Now we're going to use that same spiritual checkup tool this time, but we are going to change it. The measuring and accounting are going to be done a little different. It's going to be reversed. This time, the lower end of the tool or scale is the more desirable number to have. Satisfied, then, in this instance, means that you're satisfied that the described item or trait is either not present in your life or that you are dealing with it in a deliberate, purposeful, and intentional way to get rid of it. You're just not leaving it on the shelf, in other words. And so, the lower the number, the less is that character trait seen in your life. The higher the number, the more the trait is seen in your life. Is that clear? So you don't want a high number here. You want a lower number. Okay. Are we ready? You got your paper out? Are you willing to take the inventory? Let's begin. Let's take a look at an inventory spiritual no-nos. Paul first gives us a quota, however, or objective. Let's put it in the idea of sales again. You know, salespeople like to have a quota or an objective for the year. Here's what Paul says. I say then, walk in the Spirit. That's what we should be doing. At the end of the year, that's what we should be doing. Walking in the Spirit. If this is so, the rest of the verse mentioned here will automatically happen. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You won't have these negative things. So our quota, our objective, what we're looking for as Christians is Christians who what? Walk in the Spirit. Now my next message will be dealing with that. How do you do that? I really, the scriptures are very clear on it, very simple, but it's amazing how many Christians don't know how to do it. Then he gives the rationale for this quoted our objective, he says, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Walk in the spirit, objective, quota, rationale, because you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. To put it in the context of a spiritual audit and stock taking, referring to the kind of virtues that puts us on the prophet side as a believer, what Paul is saying, stock your character shells with the fruit of the Spirit, and you will not experience a spiritual loss in your life. How do you stock? And we talked about this last week. The spiritual virtues by walking in the Spirit. We looked at these positive spiritually plus virtues last week, if you recall. 
and explain that they were all produced by the working of the Holy Spirit as we submit ourselves to His control in our lives. That's what it means basically to walk in the Spirit. Live according to His leading and enablement. Paul says, that's our sales quota, our objective. Being controlled by the Spirit of God, being energized by Him in our life. What should we be looking for at the end of the year when we do our audit? Here's what we're looking for. To always be walking in the Spirit. That's what it is. Are you? This spiritual checkup tells you. Now you might have a general feeling. Oh yeah, I feel that way. Well, if you do the spiritual checkup, you could know. You could hide some things. But not if you do the spiritual checkup. That's why I challenge you, even when you finish here, to go home or go to a private place and do this spiritual checkup. Do you have the courage? I had to do a lot of confessing as I went through this passage. The blood of Jesus Christ is all over me. But that's good. But when we walk in the Spirit, the results, we will have no loss of the flesh evidence. The works of the flesh will not be seen. You see, it's impossible, now listen to this carefully, it's impossible for the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh to exist side by side. On an ongoing basis. When one is present, the other is not. You can walk, you cannot walk in the spirit in a certain area and also show the lust of the flesh in that area. Impossible. So you don't, can't come like that unfaithful husband who comes saying, yes, I have an affair with a woman outside. But God understands because my wife treats me bad. When one of these traits are in stock, you cannot have the other there as well. It's simple and clear cut as that. Paul continues with his rationale as to why a believer should not stock these items. He says, for the, lust, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you, are, that you want, that you wish. Now there's a good lust here and there's a bad lust here. There's an evil lust and there's a righteous lust. There's a lust of the flesh, that's evil. There's a lust of the spirit, that's righteous. Simply put again, using our audit and inventory motive. The salesman for the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit neutralize the effectiveness of the believer because they're fighting with one another. One has a good story why you should do this. The other has a better story it seems. And they're all trying to give you the reason why you should stock my product. And so one time you see this believer, yeah, I'll take yours, Mr. Flesh. Then there's a, I'll take yours, Mr. Spirit. 
But then I can't put it there because when I put it there, those two, it's a problem. What should I do? Now, the solution to the dilemma is simple. Notice what Paul says, verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, I don't want to go into the theology here. I'll just give you the practical aspects. When I say theology, I mean dealing with the law and the grace and all of that at this particular time. But I'll just give you the bottom line here. Those who live according to the law depend on the energy of the flesh. Those who live by grace depend on the power of the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means to have our daily lives under the control of the Spirit. And that means under the direction of the Word. To be led of the Spirit means to be delivered from a life of bondage to legalism. Into the life of freedom in Christ. The law is a picture, if you want, our principle of energy in the flesh, of doing things our own strength, our own way. But Paul makes a very interesting statement about being led in the Spirit. We always like to say, boy, I hope I'm led by the Spirit. I wish I am led by the Spirit in this item. The Bible teaches if you are not being led by the Spirit, you're not a Christian. You say, wow, is that right? Yeah, because we're using these terms not the way the Scripture. Listen to this passage in Romans chapter 8. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living, notice the present tense, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you are living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. Now notice this passage. For all who are being led, present tense, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Did you see that? Who are the sons of God? It's those who are being led by the Spirit of God. You cannot be a Christian and not be being led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit is a mark of the born-again Christian. You say, well, how is that possible? I sin. Well, the Spirit will say to you, confess that sin and turn away from it. If you refuse those promptings, you better examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Because if you are walking in the Spirit and you are confronted with sin, then you will turn away from it. Clear as that. That's why we offer you the opportunity of that every Lord's Day morning. It's really a checkup to see if you're walking in the Spirit. If you're walking in the Spirit, you'll confess your sin and you'll turn away from it. If you're not, you won't. That's the Word of God. Warren Risby makes this comment on verse 17. He says, verse 17 does not teach that the believer cannot get victory. The phrase should be translated, so that you may not do what you would. That is, near determination on the part of the Christian will never control the flesh or produce the fruit of the Spirit. No matter how much you... Say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. If you're only doing it in your energy, it will never change. 
We're talking about a spiritual production of a character traits if you want. Spiritual fruit is the result of a living union with the Spirit of God. Listen carefully to this. A machine may produce works, but a machine can never produce fruit. You can have a church, you can have a Christian testimony if you want, working perfectly with machinery that you yourself provide. And you can have all kinds of results, but never fruit. It works. Fruit comes from a living relationship with the Spirit of God. The Bible calls all of the things we produce ourselves as dead works. Works, but they're dead, no life. It's amazing how many Christians work so hard for a corpse, to produce corpse in their lives, dead things, rather than living fruit. Paul then goes on now to list the works of the flesh. These things must not and cannot be a part of the true believer's lifestyle. Maybe once in a while, but to get rid of it quickly. It's never a way of life. And that's what you have to understand. He's talking about these things being present as a way of life that describes a person who is not born again. As a way of life, not something that happens occasionally. Let's look at it then. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, you really don't need anyone to say that's the work of the flesh. They have the sign on it themselves. The evidence clear cut, you can tell. What are, and then he gives this for us. Two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, sixteen of them. Actually, is more because the last one says and the like. See, the list is longer, but he didn't get time to write it, I guess. This, this is another case of the oven and the, and the microwave. Let's begin our inventory then to see whether or not we be in the faith. According to scripture. First of all, adultery. Do we need to describe what that is? It's an illicit sex of a spouse with someone other than his or her spouse. That's what it is. Now in the King James and the King and New King James, this is not really mentioned in this passage. Another one just says immorality. But the King James and you divides it into two sins. Adultery and fornication. And we can see the reason why in a moment. You see, not all virgins translate the Greek word porneia. That's the Greek word that is mentioned in this passage. In fact, in some manuscripts, this word is not even used. That's why some leave it out. Some simply translated immorality. Why? Because porneia means that. All kinds of sexual sins. It can mean adultery. It can mean fornication. But it can also mean sodomy. It can mean 
bestiality, it could mean it could mean incest, it could mean pornography, because that's where the word pornography comes from, this Greek word pornea. So it has to do with all kinds of sexual illicit sins, or illicit acts, I should say. But let's follow the King James and the New King James Version. He says adultery, illicit sex of a spouse with someone other than his or her spouse. Now, most of you, boy, well, that ain't me. Well, not me. I've never been unfaithful to my spouse. I'm sure, perhaps, in this, a guy like, like, like Pastor Brian says, in a congregation this size, it wouldn't surprise me if there is. But most of us feel safe here because I have not committed the act. You see, that's good. Then that only qualifies you to be a Pharisee. Because you know what Jesus says? My disciple, righteousness, my disciples would have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Isn't that right? And he says, if you just think about it, if you just lust after someone and wish and hope that you could do it, and you're doing it all the time, you're not a part of the kingdom of God. Now, I say doing it all the time. You're not trying to get rid of it. But if you're married and you're involved in these sexual escapades and you're doing it on a constant basis, it doesn't bother you and you're doing nothing to get rid of it life, check up. See if you're really advertising the right product. Are you Christian? Paul says, not if you do these things continually. Then he mentions the other one, fornication. This is illicit sexual relations by an unmarried person. This is what couples do who shack up. Or who live together before marriage. And many Christians so-called are doing that today. And they engage in these sexual, sexual acts. But we're just trying to see if it's going to work out. If we're going to be comfortable when we get married. I'm sure God is pleased with that. No, he isn't. You're slapping God in his face. Then you take that kind of position. Paul says that fornication, porneia again, all kinds of sexual activity, but fornication is an act against one's own body. That's why I call it spiritual suicide or spiritual self-battery. Whenever you commit, and I will put this into adultery as well as fornication, it's spiritual suicide. You're beating up on yourself. Paul says it's a sin against you. Listen to the passage, 1 Corinthians 6. Not only is it a sin against your own body, it's a sin against the Holy Spirit because your body belongs to Him, if you are a true Christian. Flee immorality, that's the word, fornication, porneia. Every other sin that a man or a woman commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, that's the word fornicator or adulterer, sins against his own body. Notice now, sins against his own body. Do you not know? See, Paul is talking to Christians now because some of these were involved in this stuff. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have from God and that you are not your own. You don't have the right to do everything or anything with your body you think you want to do. That's for the women who believe, and men who believe in abortion, say a woman has the right to her own body. That's not true. Not for a Christian. You can only do with your body what the Holy Spirit wants you to do with it. You've been bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ, Peter says. Therefore glorify God in your body. Fornication, adultery is a sin that marks the person for life. Especially if it isn't confessed. Put under the blood of Jesus Christ. But thank God again for the blood of Christ. Later on, later on he goes on and says, once you were like this, once you were like this, once you were like that, but you've been cleansed, you've been washed in the blood. Oh, I thank God for the blood. But he goes on. He talks about uncleanness. And this is a broad term in the Greek. And it refers to moral impurity in thought, word, and deed. That has to do with the entire person. And how he regards life. This, is, as I say, is a broad term. Uncleanness is another word that's used for it. And it means just that. It's dirty. It's a filthiness of heart and mind that makes the person spiritually defiled. And therefore unfit to worship or otherwise comes into the presence of God. There are certain things in our lives that we do or we think about our attitude that we take that right away disbars us from getting into the presence of God. We cannot worship. That's another reason why we give you this opportunity before we start our worship as it were to confess your sins. Because if they're not confessed, you are barred from the presence of God. You're unclean, unfit. Remember how sacrifices had to be examined whether they were lame or anything? If so, they had to be Put aside. That's true with us. This uncleanness talks about these filthy things that we allow in our lives. Unclean thoughts, impure thoughts. God says it separates you from my presence. I cannot receive your worship, your prayers, or your intercession. According to Titus 1.15, the unclean, impure person sees dirt or filth in everything. Listen to the word of God. To the pure, all things are pure. Notice that. All things. But to those who are defiled, that's the word unclean. Those who are defiled, unfit to worship, unfit to be in the presence of God. Those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. They profess to know God. Here's where the audit comes in. But by their deeds they deny Him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Strong words. Some of the so-called reality shows and the things you see on TV. They say, they're, what are they on going to the edge of the envelope, pushing the envelope. Nothing is sacred anymore when it comes to humor. Nothing. 
And Christians sit down there and laugh and take it all in, not realizing that they are being defiled, unclean, when they watch it. You say, boy, that's strong. Well, go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 describes all kinds of sins. He says, there are people like this, unclean people, even invent new sins. They invent them. And it says not only that, you have people who watch them do this. This is Paul now. Watch them do these things. And we just sit there and we enjoy it. Vicariously doing what we're watching. Making us unfit, unclean to worship or to be in the presence of God. You think Paul is finished? Look at the next word. Lewdness. King James, in other words, has lasciviousness or debauchery, sensuality. All of these are translation of this word. Wantonness. It describes an open, shameless, brazen display of immorality. No shame. Listen to Paul's warning, 2 Corinthians, about this. I'm afraid, and he's talking to Christians. It's in this passage where these people were accusing him of all kinds of things, even saying that Paul was a Christian, wasn't a Christian. Notice what he says. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. Now notice. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented, of their impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced in the church. Yeah, you're in the church, but maybe you have not really born again. You have not really repented at all. And now you're accusing me of what's wrong with you. Don't we like to do that? Look into our own lives and see all of the facts, and then we go to the other person that we're trying to get at, and we charge them with our sin. It speaks of a wanting, wanton appetite that knows no shame. This is the kind of behavior I say that flaunts itself. It's done without regard for self-respect or the rights and feelings of others. Most of what you see on TV fits into this. Well, they say, well, if you don't watch it, what? Change the channel. That's the excuse they have. Don't care about nobody. But here is the problem. So many professing Christians watch all of these lewd things on TV. And they enjoy it. They don't turn the channel. Or if they do, they wait till they watch enough of it. But they don't realize that when we engage in watching these things and be engaged in them that we become as guilty and lewd as the ones we are watching because our righteousness does not go beyond the righteousness of the fire of these but we're not doing it and Jesus says you watching it you doing it here 
That's the standard of righteousness that Jesus laid down. Now, if you want to be a Christian, you have to accept that standard or you're in trouble. You cannot make up your own standard to be a Christian. You realize that? That's why I was trying not to, but I think I'm going to write to the newspaper. Now, you know this whole problem came up with, with the menorah and the Christian decorations and so on I mentioned before. As well as idea of, uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, being, what's the word? Tolerant. There's a preconceived idea that to be Christian, you have to be tolerant. That's a lie. That's not true. Especially when you come to tolerance of other gods. If we were under the Old Testament economy, none of the other religions would be around. We let the commander go and destroy him. Because there's only one God. One true and living God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. Is that tolerant? No. But it's true. This is the standards, these are the standards that he's laid down. But let's go to another one. It's difficult to take an inventory, isn't it? Now, we had our favorites. I ain't going to do this no more. I don't want to look at these items. It just means that you could end up having a spiritual loss in your life. But not because that's idolatry. Idolatry is simply putting things or even people or a good cause ahead of God. It's anything we substitute for God as the primary object of our worship or time. Our devotion and our faith. Anything we place as a substitute. Now the first things we looked at just now were the manifestation of the lust of the flesh. Uncleanness, fornication and adultery. They were all sexual in nature. But now beginning here, Paul describes what he might call superstitious or religious sins. He begins with idolatry. Now idolatry does not simply refer to the worship of idols made with human hands out of trees or wood or machines or metal or anything else for that matter. That's one form of idolatry, but that's not the only form. Idolatry is simply putting things or even people or even a good cause ahead of God. It's anything we substitute for God as the primary object of our devotion, our worship, our faith. Someone has said, we are, we are to worship God, love people, and use things. But too often, we use people, love self, worship things, and leave God out of the picture altogether. Or if we bring in him, we try to use him as well. He's the errand boy. I want this, go get it. See? Jesus, though, tells us that whatever or whoever we worship, we serve. He says that in Matthew 4.10. Whatever or whoever we worship, that's who we serve. That's what we serve. Now let's get practical. The Christian who devotes more of himself 
to his car, his house, or his boat than he does to worshipping or serving God is committing idolatry. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians about idolatry. Verse 5. Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, dead to impurity, dead to passions, dead to evil desire, and greed, which what? Amounts to idolatry. Greed, covetousness, is idolatry. That's why, for instance, See, it's applying these things that gives us problem. Oh, we like the doctrine and the teaching and the talking about it. But let's look at the practical aspect. Remember, it's not just hearing the word, it's doing it that gets the blessing. Isn't that right? You see, this is why, for instance, we have to be very careful of what we leave unattended in our worship or in our ministry when it comes to our vacations, for instance. Paul tells us that covetousness nor greed is idolatry. In other words, the thing we covet becomes our object of worship. We can covet time. Man, I need time to be by myself. I need time to do this. I need space. What are you going to do with that? Well, I can do nothing. I'm going to church. I can do nothing. No service. I want the time for me. That's idolatry. (laughs) Listen carefully. We can cover time, relaxation, so much to the extent that we leave the worship and service of God out altogether. Paul says that's idolatry. I'm sorry folks, that's what the text says. Examine yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith. But Paul mentioned something else. Sorcery. Oh, and he said, we're glad. I finally, I this one ain't got nothing to do with me. Well, the Greek word again. It really means the use of drugs in witchcraft. A practice that involves tampering with or worshipping of evil or demonic powers. That's where the original word comes from. Sorcery, witchcraft. Today we call witchcraft what? Wicca. And some churches actually have people come in to talk about Wicca. It's amazing. Now this word, witchcraft or uh, sorcery, comes from a Greek word that we get pharmacy from for us today. The use of drugs, but is normally mentioned in a positive way. It means the dispensing of drugs for medical purpose. That's the positive side. But in this context, it's the use of dispensing of drugs or to poison or to adversely affect people. The use of drugs in witchcraft. That involves tampering and worshipping of evil and demonic powers. Magic and casting of spells. Obia, voodoo. All that's included here. Those who practice such things are listed along with the fornicators and idolaters in Revelation. It says, I have no part of the kingdom of God. 
That is, we continue to practice, as I said, it also teaches that you can be washed. Always remember that. But these things are forbidden in the Bible, in the Word of God. Now we could go on and talk about these Ouija boards. Even to some extent, the way some Christians use horoscopes. They actually plan their life according to the horoscope. Who are you? You ever hear that? That's the big thing. Who are you? They don't mean what's your name. Okay, what are they looking for? What's your sign? That's sorcery. That's a mark of the flesh. That should not be in a Christian's character at all. But then he mentions another one. Hatred. This is in the plural, by the way, hatreds. It's wishing and desiring ill of others. The worst, doing things that deliberately hurt others or that would cause alienation between people. That's the work of the flesh. These are what might call social sins now. He's talking about social sins. What happens when we socialize with people? Hatreds, enmities. It's in the plural. It, it describes a, a, a feeling of enmity between or within groups. The King James calls it enmities. It's the attitude of mind that defies and challenges others to the point of alienation. You know, you, no matter what it is, this person comes and whatever you say, he's going to try some way to argue with you. To show you a wrong or you're not doing it in the right way. This attitude leads to strife, which is the outworking of enmity. It refers not only to hostile actions, but hostile attitudes and sentiments and intentions as well. It's just something that you're contrary to others. Without any basis. It's wishing and desiring ill of others. Just so you could get ahead, just so you could make a point, just could you show him up, just so you could hurt that person. Now Christians don't do those things, do they? Examine yourself. How do you relate to those people around you in your ministry? But I'm a teacher, I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I can't convict you. Some of these things really convicted me. And it was the Spirit of God. So we have to leave it to Him to do the convicting. So let's go on then. Contentions. This, is the, this can be also described as discords, or strife, or quarrels. You see, these are all social things. That's why some of them seem to overlap. Contentions, discords, and strife are the natural result of hatreds or enemies. That's what happens. The Greek word may also be translated quarrelsomeness. The words themselves describe it. That's why an elder, a pastor, cannot be a striker. One who is easily provoked or provoked at all. You cannot be. Paul, why you got that phone on? 
Ushers, remind the key Paul outside next time. <laughs> Quarrelsomeness. The person always is, always is disagreeable. He just wants to fight with you. You got to find something wrong. Boy, Pastor that was a good message. But, but why are you wearing that tie today? <laughs> you, you know, he's got to find something. Now here's a disturbing thing. This word is used six times in the New Testament and four times is used in reference to Christians' relationship with one another. You know something? For instance, listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 11. He says, I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by closed people, or Chloe, that there are quarrels among you. That's the word. Quarrels among you. He's writing to Christians. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. You know why some people are not here today? It's because I'm preaching. If I was preaching, they'd be here. That's what he's talking about. When we deal with the application of Scripture, it hurts, doesn't it? But that's what Scripture is for, to be applied. I'll give one more and then I'll stop because maybe this is a little pressuring. Or as I, as I, or like or like um, Dr. Howard Hendricks used to say, I better move on here because it's too convicting. Jealousies. Jealousies. Notice the plural again. It means a zeal for self. A selfish jealousy. The King James Version calls this emulations. The Greek word is zealos. It simply means zeal. It could be good or bad. It could be selfful, sinful, or it could be righteous. Now here in the context of the desires of the flesh, it does not refer to a zeal for God, but it is a zeal for self. Selfish zeal. Selfish jealousy. Listen to what Paul says. He uses the same word again in Romans 13, 13. He says, let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness. I want you to see, these lists are given throughout scripture we'll be talking about now. This isn't just one isolated. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. And he gives us the remedy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh. For the flesh regards to its lusts. Walk in the Spirit is putting on Christ. Putting on Jesus. That's how we are able to protect ourselves from all of these other things. Walking in the Spirit and putting on Christ.
One more. Outbursts of anger. Or outbursts of wrath. I had described as uncontrollable anger, but really that doesn't go far enough when you use the, bur- the, burst, uh, the, the Greek word here. It, it means fits of rage. But you see, it doesn't just describe an attitude. It describes the result of that rage. It's when you destroy people, hurt things because of this fit of rage, this anger. God... I was going to say, cured me of that, because, but I'm not sure I'm completely cured yet. Because there's one thing that I had before I became a Christian, was an uncontrollable anger. I used to throw things at people. I remember one time I got so mad, I was, dri- I was riding my bicycle back then, I had no cars. I was riding my bicycle on the fort. I got so I took up my good bicycle and threw it over the fort. Could we hurt people? You see the point? We strike out. Uncontrollable anger that results in harming others, destroying property. I've been into elders and pastors' meetings like that. Not here. <laughs> Not here. Where the elders became so mad and angry, they started throwing things and they had to walk out. Does that happen here? Or in your experience, in your committee meeting, in your deacons meeting, in your pastors meeting? One story, then I close. I invite you to come out tonight. We're going to finish it this evening. But we're going to have a time. And this is a challenge to you all, to me. We want you to share how God is working in your life at the beginning of a new year, and you have done your, 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 your audit. Is God saying anything to you? you want to make any commitments? What do you want to do? Do you want anything to share? We're going to have a time for that tonight as we finish this up, and I want you to come up. But I was in an interim pastor situation in Dallas, Texas for a while. I won't give you the name of the church, because we have one of them here in the Bahamas. I was preaching one evening and talking about the church. And I said, there's a local church and there's a universal church. And I was teaching that. Right in the middle of the message, a deacon stood up. He said, that's heresy. You are a heretic in the church service. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, the Bible don't teach nothing but no universal church. It says only teaches about local church. And only those who are baptized by the people in that local church have the Holy Spirit. And you don't have the Holy Spirit because you weren't baptized by any of our men. Oh yeah, the churches who believe that. Well, afterwards, a couple of the other guys came up to me and said, don't be concerned about that. But this guy came up and said, you come back here? <laughs> There's a deacon now. One of the oldest deacons in the church. You come back here and we're going to Fistville. Fistville. 
Now back then I only like weighed like 125 pounds, you know. But the other guys came around and said, Brother E, don't worry about him. But before I came back to that church, I called up those guys. I said, you got him under control. Because <laughs> I didn't want to go no Fistville. But he was a deacon. He was a deacon. He was leading the church. That is why it's so important for us here to be sure that men in leadership position fit the qualifications given in Scripture. That's why I praise God for what's happening right now amongst our men and our elders uh, and, 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 and the, the new nominations for deacons. We're going through those. And I believe that we have some good men. And we're going through them. Our elders met with each of the men and spoke to them. And their wives. Their wives had to come along as well. Because we want to be as sure as we possibly can that our leaders are men who have no, no evidence of the works of the flesh in their lives. That's important. You as an individual have to be sure yourself that the works of the flesh, the marks of the flesh, has to have to be eradicated out of your life. Yes, you may have them, but if you leave them alone and do nothing about it, that does not indicate that you are a spirit-filled Christian. It indicates that you better check up yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith. But if you are submissive to the Spirit of God, He can cleanse you. He can redeem you. He can, that, that can be taken away completely. And you can have a new ledger to begin a new year. That's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Bow with me in the word of prayer. Take a few moments for quiet reflection if God has spoken to you in any way. Perhaps you need to make a commitment as practically as you're going to come out this evening to finish this. Or perhaps you have something to share how God is working in your life, how he's cleansed you, how he's turned you around, whatever it may be. Whatever it may be that the Spirit of God is leading you to, be led. Be continually being led by him. Walk in the Spirit. Follow his directions so that you do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And all of God's people said, Amen.